This is The Playbook. This is London Real. I am Brian Rose. My guest today is David Meltzer, the American entrepreneur, author, speaker, and broadcaster. You are the CEO of Sports One Marketing, the successful sports and entertainment agency you co-founded with the Hall of Fame quarterback, Warren Moon. You've written two best-selling books and your latest game time decision-making outlines every step of the business process with tools and tactics for any situation. David, welcome to London Real. How exciting is this? Thank you for having me, Brian. Great having you. First of all, what's it like for you to come to London? Like, how is this city different than all the other places that you visit around the world? What's the vibe you get? I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, you know, it's a lot like New York, uh, except for it has this history to it. You know, as you walk around and see things that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, and you can see how the transformation from the governmental side to the United States and how the reliance between the two. It's, it's really interesting, I think, especially now with the political atmosphere of both, that we're both taking a hit in credibility from the political side uh, and the judgment uh, that has made. I'm a huge uh, student of judgment. I, I've been studying judgment on how our judgment actually separates us from the truth. Hmm. And so I'm really looking at the vibe here in London and how it's really similar to New York, but yet there's a history that causes it to, to, I think, have much more confidence than the insecurity that I feel energetically in the United States. Okay, interesting. So there's a little more insecurity in the States than here. Yeah. Saying, and maybe that's the history. I, I do. I think, you know, if you study history, you get a feel for human nature. And through the repetition of understanding how governments evolve, we're really a young country, obviously spreading off from Europe. You were, you know, I think, born in the United States yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, to me, it's really interesting because I think there is a sense of security, even though things may be a little different right now politically here, and not everyone may feel uh, in support of gov the government and, and the leadership, which is certainly true in the United States as well. There's a lot of insecurity, which is causing you know, infighting between the parties. Yeah. You know, there's great insecurity. With great insecurity comes fear. With fear comes anger. And I don't see that here in London. That's but the hustle, bustle, and energy. I, you know, live in Southern California, so I have to fly to New York every other week to get my juices going. <laughs> so it took it up another level coming from Portugal to here. It was like, oh, thank goodness, I'm back. Got your buzz back. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I was just in New York a few days ago, and like I got to revisit, you know, what I lived there for four years in the past, so I got to see that buzz. Um, which is a little bit higher than London, but they're still very similar. And it's interesting you say that about the history here. You know, I was here for the, the bombings in 2007, and um, I remember I was in the city when it happened, and you know, we had bombings on buses and on the subways. And one thing I noticed, David, is the next day, everybody went back to work, and they got on with it. And I was like, oh, these are the people that had their whole city bombed in 1940 for three months, and they just got back to it. And I, I, and so there was a history of, you know what, we're gonna persevere. The Vikings came, and the Germans came, yeah. and, and we're gonna guess we, we're gonna get there. It was like that kind of keep calm and carry on. And I had a lot of respect for the British when I saw that. You know, it's interesting because the Israelis the same way. Uh, right when 9/11 happened, that was the advice that the people, my friends from Israel, were given. You got to get back. Right, everything has to go back to normal. They win, 
if you don't go back to normal. Right, right. And I love that philosophy and it was not true. Uh, you know, we obviously took a while to recover and get yeah. back to normalcy. Uh, but I love and respect uh, exactly that consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential and enjoying it regardless of what those different outcomes are. Yeah, for sure. So you and I went to high school not far from each other, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of crazy. Uh, you went to a place called Patrick Henry High School. I went to a place called Gompers, Samuel Gompers High School until 10th grade. Then I went to Torrey Pines, same place Tony Hawk went to, which I know has been on your podcast. Yeah. Um, and I remember here in Patrick Henry High, because I think we used to f compete against each other in like science fairs and these like kind of quiz knowledge things that we used to do. I always remember here in your school. So um, that's kind of crazy. But you went to Tulane Law School, and so did a buddy of mine from MIT actually went to Tulane. I used to go down and visit him there. But you have a kind of a crazy story that happened to you, and I think probably maybe that's the best way to start because I think your story of being really successful and then kind of being really unsuccessful or financially and yeah. then kind of being successful again, I think that kind of arc, or maybe it doesn't feel like an arc, <laughs> that kind of sine wave tells a lot about why you are the guy you are today. So maybe you could tell us what happened. What were those big points where you yeah. learned so much? They probably caused a lot of pain, but you learned a lot. Yeah, I did. I grew up poor, six kids and a single mom. I grew born in Akron, Ohio. She moved me to San Diego when I was nine. Okay. I always said no matter what she did, she was going to be my hero moving me from Akron, Ohio to San Diego because it was heaven. Uh, but I just wanted to be rich to buy my mom a house and a car, two-bedroom apartment, six kids. You know, I saw my mom. I grew up really happy, by the way. Happiness is a key component of my life. So I grew up really happy, but when I catch my mom crying over financial stress, the car would break down, a dishwasher, couldn't afford us to go to summer camp, worried. You know, my mom believed this, a fetus wasn't fully developed after graduate school, so her, the fear of not paying for school was just the end all to her. And so I was dedicated, unlike my siblings were like you, hyper academic, Harvard, Penn, Columbia. I just wanted to be rich. So I reverse engineered my life from being a professional football player to a doctor, went to Occidental where your mom went, which is a doctor feeding school, okay. then literally on to law school. But I reverse engineered my law school by making money. I went and I looked and I said, what lawyer out of law school makes the most? And it was oil and gas. Those litigators, the oil and gas litigators, yeah. So, it's like the 90s, right? Yeah. Or late I, 80s, 90s. Late, yeah. late 80s, early 90s, and I went, and I went to the top maritime law school, Tulane, and when I graduated, though, I got offered two jobs. To I studied really hard, became a great student, but to be a litigator in oil and gas, make six figures, and on my way to buy my mom a house and a car, but I also got offered a job selling legal research online. A big legal publisher in America was now putting all their books online, and my professor, a maritime law professor, was their leading publisher. He wrote the Louisiana Treaties, the Civil Code, the Napoleonic Code, which we use internationally. And he said, you gotta apply for this job. You're a born salesman. Dave, don't worry about what other people think. I'm telling you, you wanna be rich, this is where it's at. There wasn't um, much internet then. There was no internet. What year is Dot this? .edu, 92. Jesus, yeah. It was early. Real 286 early. computers, XT computers. Uh, 9,600 bowed modems. That's like a dial up slower than slow. Yeah, uh, I but I went to my mom and my true advisor. I could I say my mom, I almost choke up when I'm in public because she's done so much for me. She's still here. She's yeah, still here in San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. Okay, nice. And uh, I asked her, what should I do? And without blinking, she said, you need to be a real lawyer. You know, this internet thing, it's a fad. 
and you can't, you know, you can't get involved in this. You got to be a lawyer, Dave. You studied so hard, and I was really, really caught because it was the first time in my life. And this is why it's so critical to later on. I believe that most people put faith in what other people want for them. I call it voting. If you vote for what you want, it's going to be elected. In the, and the more votes you give what you want by thinking, saying, doing, believing what you want, it's going to come to you. And it's the first time in my life I voted for what I wanted. I, 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 it was in my soul. I'm like, you know what? Now, did I hedge my bet and take the bar and pass the bar? Yeah, I hedged my bet. You know, I'm not a fool. But I put the votes into what I want, and I took people who laughed at me, scoffed at me, my friends in law school, my family. You can imagine, you know, an educated Jewish family, what they thought going into sales after borrowing money to go to law school, scholarship to college. I, I voted for what I want, and I also created a plan to become rich. I looked, I was at a comp plan of $250,000 a year to sell legal research, and I looked at my life and I said, I'm gonna work productively, twice as many hours. I'm going to work and work efficiently. I'm going to practice so that I get twice as many hours there. And then I'm going to be more statistically successful. I'm going to be a student, a professional. I'm going to look in the mirror. I'm going to videotape with the big beta videotapes. I'm going to do everything I can to be statistically successful. As a salesman. As a salesman. And you had never really trained and done that. Oh, and I had no relationships. Okay. I just. But the, your law professor said go into this because he thought it was going to be hot and new. And I was a born salesman. So even though you loved your mom, and I can tell you love her, oh, you yeah. still didn't take her advice. Yeah. Whereas most people are blinded by the love and the judgment in their, of the people in their life, and they will take their advice. But you knew that at 23 or 4 or whatever. Somehow. I found out just because someone loves you doesn't mean they give you good advice. And maybe because I had older siblings that were you know, doctors, went to Harvard, Penn, and, and you know, my oldest brother, I remember him telling me he was a great doctor, told me, you know, Dave, when you go to Occidental, get educated. I'm well-trained. So there was a few influences to do that, but I have stuck to that advice uh, besides being more interested than interesting. My older brother, when I decided not to be a doctor, because I, I didn't even know at 18, I was in pre-med, that doctors had to be in hospitals. I want to be a sports doctor. I thought I'd never have to be in a hospital. And my brother gave me this great advice. He said, you've got to be more interested than interesting. And I started living my life to be interesting. I mean, interested and not interesting. But moving forward. It's a great point, by the way, for anyone listening. I mean, people always think they need to be interesting, but being interested is powerful. I mean, that's a big part of my job is being interested. And you're good at it. I mean, but I, and I really am. Like, that's why I love having these people here. But if I wasn't, it wouldn't be much fun to watch. So I think it's, it's underrated being interested. <laughs> I had to remind myself when I started my podcast, because I started my podcast just to impact people because I had these great relationships, as you'll find out, with athletes and celebrities, and I wanted to get their playbook to success. Right. But the first few I, I listened back to with Hall of Famers, and I'm like, gosh, you're disinteresting. Shut up. Let them talk. You know, it was really good. Yeah, um, I teach a bunch of students in broadcasting, and I say the same thing. I'm just like, don't talk about yourself. The first episode should be 10% you, maybe 20%. The rest should be the guests. And just, it's hard. Listen, it is hard. So, all right, you're at this crossroads. Yeah. You take, I'm going to go in the internet sales route in like 92. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as opposed to the being a, a oil and gas lawyer. Litigator. All right. Yeah. Okay, big decision. Big all decision. Right. I take it. 
I am a student, more interested than interesting. So I take eight hours, turn it to 16, 16, turn it to 32 hours of productivity a day. If I could be statistically successful, I could get up to 64 hours of productivity a day. Okay. Eight hours of work in one day. Okay, you gonna tell us how you did that? Yeah, Okay. I, literally. So I started being a student in my calendar. I, I realized there's, back then, there's only you know in person, on the phone, there wasn't email or social media or any media. So I focused in on my productivity and my accessibility. How productive could I be and how accessible am I to others and how was I accessing what I wanted? So I took those hours seriously. I believe that attention plus intention would equal the coincidences that I wanted. So everything was mathematics to me. Hmm. So every day I charted and I, and I didn't believe in work. Right? I told you earlier, I don't believe in busy, you're active. Yeah. Well, beyond that, work didn't exist to me. I said, here's what I'm gonna do. There's gonna be activity in my life. Activity I get paid for, activity I don't get paid for. I'm gonna maximize seven days a week, activity I get paid for, and learn to love it. My wife always says, God, you're so lucky, you always love what you did. And I said, who the heck would love selling legal research online? No, I learn to love everything I do first. If I can't learn to do it, love to do it, I'm not gonna do it. So these little things, all of a sudden I laughed because nine months out of law school, I was a millionaire. Hmm. You know, I four times my comp plan, they gave me all these awards. Meanwhile, I learned when you're in sales, they reward you by doing really well, by cutting your territory and raising your number. I never understood that, but they did to <laughs> me. They, uh, they changed so, the whole comp plan. So real quickly, I mean, language is so important, but you right away you've just made two discernments when it comes to your language. So earlier I was like, you're busy, you said, no, I'm active. And you say, no, I'm not working, I'm being active. So right away, people think language doesn't matter. Oh, it's a oh. word, it's four letter word, you know, you know, busy or work or work or active or whatever, six letters. But it does make a huge difference, right? Because all the connotations, and then you make it think, oh, I'm working too much. All your friends say, you're working. No, I'm active. And then you tell your own as self a dialogue and you defeat yourself, right? Yeah. So it's important to get Great those resistance. Terms, right? Work, when you feel work, you feel resistant. Energetically, perception-wise, work is hard. Activity isn't. Activity you get paid for certainly isn't. Right. Okay. Right. And if you're maximizing that activity mathematically, I always laughed at when they gave me those awards. I said, you know, I'm embarrassed because I really didn't hit my number. They said, what are you talking about? You did a million dollars. Your comp plan was 250. I said, yeah, but I worked 10 years in nine months. Right. I worked 64 hours of productivity a day, seven days a week. So how did you do that? So literally, couple rules. One, I, I started living with values. Now they weren't as clear as they are now because as you'll find out when I lost everything, I really got honed in on my values. But I was naturally grateful, forgiving. I wasn't as accountable as I, I was later on in life, but I was inspired. Naturally inspired dude. Like I just, everything to me was a competition. It was more in a scarce uh, energy that I was uh, inspired. I was okay. always inspired to compete. Right. And so number one, sticking to my values of living with gratitude I was just thankful. I was so poor. I remember staying in my first hotel room and it was like someone gave me a billion dollars. I couldn't believe I had my own hotel room or I had an expense account for $25 a day for food. I was so grateful because I didn't always have money to eat, right? I, I, I literally was so grateful. Even when I was making tons of money, I was just such a grateful. And then I was born with you know, six siblings or five siblings, six of us. I'm a very forgiving person <laughs> uh, for what I did and for what they did. Uh, and so first was a value. Second was uh, I was born to ask. 
You know, all these people around me, you know, including football players later on in my life, you don't get unless you ask. I really was learning to ask two questions. How could I provide value? And more importantly, I was really good at asking people for help when I was young. Do you know anyone that could help me? I'm looking for a fellowship with Major League Baseball. I'm looking to go to the best law school. I'm looking for, like that professor. And so you posted two questions on your uh, Instagram feed recently, which was, yeah, what can I do to help? Well, how can I add value? And do you know anyone that can help me? Yeah, that's those the whole thing. It took me a while to read those two questions because they don't look like they go together. Because one is you giving things, and then one is you're asking, but I guess you're asking for someone to help you give. Correct. That's where giving and receiving became one to me, which motivated me because you will find out when I lost everything, it, the giving was for me, the receiving was for me, and I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of interference and corrosion to the connection that inspired me. I didn't feel worthy of what I had. When your mom makes $17,000 a year and you've made $10 million in a year, there's a lot of connectivity that has to happen. But you know, early on, you know, I, I was more money-driven. Money bought happiness. And I truly believe that. Money bought happiness because I was super happy. Uh, parlayed, we, we sold that company and I was uh, the youngest executive there for $3.4 billion in 95. Wow, in just a few years later. Yeah. That was uh, fast. Yeah, it was a, and it was a lot of money um, back then. And so I parlayed that up into the Silicon Valley. I learned the Sand Hill Road game. I became a salesman on Sand Hill Road, which meant I knew how to raise money. I right. was the front man. And so people that don't know, Sand Hill is the venture capitalist. Venture capitalist, Silicon Valley. Right. Back then, just to remind people, because as we get older, you know, some of the young VCs and entrepreneurs may not know this, literally people like HP Ventures, Texas Pacific, Amarendo, Sequoia, they would write you $10 million checks on the spot. If you're a good sales rep, Raise it in probably in the early days in Wall Street, people don't remember the, the size and scope of, of how money moved and how easily it moved. It was incredible. Uh, and you were pitching companies. I, I I was hired by a company called EveryPath. It was in the wireless proxy server space. Okay. What we did is transcode the internet to WAP phones and Palm Sevens. Okay, I remember WAP. Yeah, Palm. so <laughs> I was stuck though because I was raising money for something I didn't believe in, because in my mind, I had been in the internet for so long. I knew that eventually a handheld wouldn't need to be transcoded. Back then, Windows was the only operating system and I felt there's gonna be a Windows phone. So I was talking a lot in, in different panels and keynotes about what I called convergence, that all of these things are converged. The, the content, the access to it, and the hardware that we put it on, I called them mediums. Okay. Sure enough, got hired by Samsung's very first smartphone, a Windows CE device. So I became the front man, the salesman for that company. Samsung became the second largest manufacturer of phones in the world. Okay. I wasn't capable of doing that. So this is like late 90s now. Late 90s. And how much money uh, do you have? At that time, at you know, probably on paper, because a lot of stocks, 30 million at that time. Okay, in your late 20s. In my late 20s, okay. and then into th by 32. And are you, are you crazy? Are you spending money everywhere? Are you buying houses? I, I'm buying houses. I'm, okay. I'm crazy with stocks, and, and I'm still very personally conservative, but then I get married and uh, to my childhood dream girl. Now, she didn't like me. We went to Patrick Henry, went to Weinberger Elementary School, Lewis, and then Patrick Henry, and literally, she hated me. I threw an egg at her when I was 12 because my best friend, who literally asked her to go steady for me, embarrassed me and said she said no. 
I somehow now, still in my mind, she hates when I say this because it isn't true. You'll know this because she's stuck with me. <laughs> I thought money bought love. Like, I, in my mind, it's like, she didn't like me as little. Is this the American dream somehow? Because I grew up as a kid, and I used to dream about money. And I used to th dream about being rich, and then I'd wake up and realize I wasn't rich. I mean, I wasn't poor. But, like, for me, I thought money would buy my happiness, literally until I was 40 years old, yeah. David. And then I realized it didn't. And that's when I took this whole other crazy route. Is that a San Diego thing? Is that an American thing? Or is that just a weird guys like I, I, us I think it, it, it's an American thing for those people people that are able to achieve that freedom. You know, there is a freedom that happens. And by the time I was 32, uh, I was being let go by Samsung because I wasn't capable of being the CEO. I was a salesperson. They paid me to leave, but I owned stocks and real estate and I was an entrepreneur, an investor. I was in all kinds of things. That's when I started losing control because I had over $100 million. I had bought a golf course that was eighth best in the nation, a ski mountain, all my real estate. I really didn't even know. I know I was worth more than 100 million because the golf course was LTV'd at 120 and I'd put 12 million into it with my group. You know, there's only four of us. Okay. So I knew I had a lot of money. I was out of control. You know, I started, I had three daughters, the third one on the way at the time. And I lived those four years from 32 to 36. It's almost like a blackout. I, I, was searching. I remember I built my home when I was 32, Dreamhouse in Rancho Santa Fe, which you know the area. Yeah. Acre, huge home, outdoor living room, resort backyard. But I remember the first day lying there and the first thing in my head was, oh shit, I wasn't happy. I, 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 I had stopped working and that's where the alcohol, the drugs, all, all the strip clubs, and, and it was like and that hadn't living. happened before. No, it was like at 32 when you. I we used to laugh at the older guys, like I, I, that. I would rather like, why would you spend your money on that when you could go to Ruth Chris, right? Because still, the going to a nice restaurant was still the gratitude kid, right? Somehow, the poor kid. And, and even when I started doing those things, I was outside myself, going, I don't want to do this. I. It's such a weird thing looking back, years and years, going. I remember being unhappy while I was doing it, and then being such a follower just lost hmm. and uh, which doesn't sound like the rest of your life before no, then no and it was an evolution and there's three things that happened that I, looking back were warnings and one was when I was 30 so I was on top of the world my father who left when I was five uh, one of the hardest things for me to talk about is I still can't get over guilt wise because my dad was my hero from five to ten my dad married a girl closer to my age than him he would drive by and wave in his convertible. I didn't know back in the early 70s about child support, but my dad was a deadbeat dad and rich with my mom's son who packed her dinner in a paper bag so she could work a second job. Wow. Told you. Well, I'm saying to her, I said, I'm like, how come you can't be like dad? You're such a loser. So you can see still, I'm processing this because yeah. it's so hard for me to think how my mom stood there without saying anything, but when I was 30. And you feel guilty about that? Still. Okay, that yeah. you didn't back your mom. Yeah, I couldn't. But you, you didn't know, under, six years old, I didn't, you didn't understand. understand what was going on. I was so money driven, of course. Like your dad? Yeah, okay. like my dad. Did you which get that from dad? Yeah, okay. and it's a quantum memory, right? It's in my DNA. And, uh, but at 10 years old, my dad made a big mistake. He forgot my birthday. And the mistake wasn't forgetting my birthday, it was I was a, fairly intelligent 10 year old. 
So when I asked him, hey, how could you forget my birthday? He said, I don't believe in birthdays. Now, meanwhile, he'd been celebrating my sibling's birthday, his own birthday. That really hurt me. And so I went into this. Because you knew he lied to you. Yeah. And that was I, the first time just, he lied to you. Seriously. So the hero. Was hero. Like, I hated him. So I really didn't talk to him that much. I would dread going to visit him when I moved to California. Like even until later on in my life, I didn't think my dad cared. Uh, but when I was 30, I got a birthday gift from my dad. I was married, recently married. I got this gift. I started crying. My wife's like, why? Oh, he's never given me a birthday gift since I was 10. I opened it up. It's a beautiful blazer. And I try it on. It fits perfectly. And my wife kind of smirks because I know she gave my sizes to him. And he had this custom made. And I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm picking up the phone to call him. And I look in and he tore out, like physically tore out all the pockets. The pockets on the inside. On the inside. And I'm now furious. I call him like, Dad. I go, why would you send me a jacket with no pockets? He goes, well, the jacket's not for wearing. I'm like, what's it for? He goes, to remind you of me. I'm like, what, that you're an asshole? He's like, no, that you're just like me. I'm like, I'm nothing like you. I don't even like you. I, I have a family. I support my, like I, I started venting, you know, and, and dumping on him. He said, no, he goes, you're just like me. You want to be the richest man in the cemetery. He goes, I want you to hang that jacket. It's not for wearing. Every day, look at it to remind me of, you of me to remind you you can't take anything with you when you're gone. Now, I hung that jacket. I didn't look at it, and I hated him. And you didn't get the message. Didn't get the message at 30. I, but he I, saw you becoming him, yeah. and he said, I'm unhappy. I wasted my whole life chasing money, which is probably true, yep. and I, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. So that's like his last act of love or yeah. a strong act of love. A strong act of that's love. That's a pretty strong act. I know at the time, though, it could make you angry because you still wanted love, real love from him. Yeah, yeah, and I thought he was you know, projecting onto me and that I was nothing like him. Right. But it was a good warning. The second warning was from my best friend who asked my wife to go steady. Right. Right. The guy who went to Pettigrew as well. He stopped hanging out with me when I was doing all the things I shouldn't be doing. The drugs and the strip clubs and all, all that, that stuff. Okay. And he knew the and guys. all that's in San Diego. Yeah, he okay. knew all the guys I was hanging out with. And uh, he took, went golfing with me and he said, hey, I'm worried about you. I said, how are you worried about me? You don't hang out with me anymore. He goes, I'm your best friend. He goes, you're hanging out with the wrong people and you're doing the wrong things. And I said, no, 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 I'm not doing what they're doing. And he said to me, you can lie to, your, you can lie to me, but don't lie to yourself, Dave, please. So I was like, that one hit me. Two weeks later, I went to, I, I, in this period of time, by the way, now that I'm getting to this period, just went from 30 to 32 out of Samsung. Now I'm about 35, uh, 34 and a half. This is when my best friend says this now. Okay, and then you've been doing this stuff for two years. Yeah, I'm CEO of Lee Steinberg now. Um, I had gotten a job. Okay. Um, Lee had hired me for, for the money. You know, like I was just a money guy, and and you know it was a dream of mine. I fell in my lap, so I'm I'm running Lee Steinberg, doing these things on on the tail end, and my wife. I'm with Little John. The rapper. Okay, yeah. And I lied to him. He was at the Pencils of Promise Gala. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Steinberg's a sports agent. Yeah, Lee Steinberg yeah. They moved, did the movie Jerry Maguire. Right, right. So yeah. somehow I ended up manifesting unconsciously the CEO of the world's most notable sports agency, okay. Jerry Maguire. And he gave a Sunday for the love of the game, 
football, baseball, Vander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, right. huge firm. So even when you're messing up your life, you're yeah. still attracting I have a, good people. Yeah, unconscious competency to that? make money. I, I truly believe in an unconscious competency, that I was born with a quantum memory in my DNA on how to attract money. I, I believe that, and I believe you can adjust that and shift that, but that has never, you know, as I study conscious, subconscious, and unconscious mind, I have an unconscious competency to attract money. Mm -hmm. And I help people now build that and earn that through consistent behavior, uh, because you can shift your energy and shift your quantum. That's how we can heal things and a variety of other things. I spend a lot of time being interested in my own conscious, subconscious, and unconscious. Uh, I lie to my wife. I tell her I'm going to a business meeting and I end up coming home at 5.30 in the morning in a disastrous state of mind. She's awake, she looks at me, and for the first time ever, my wife stands up to me and tells me she's not happy until in the morning tells me that she's gonna leave me unless I go and take stock in who I was and what I wanna become because I wasn't the same person that she married. I get really angry go back into the bedroom, figuring out how I'm gonna hire a lawyer, you know, how could she say this to me, great need to be offended, great need to be superior, such ego-based consciousness, right. and I sat there so mad, and then I got really depressed, because it just hit me, all three of these people were right. And then I got, I just laid in bed, I couldn't get out, and I wasn't thinking about suicide, but I just was thinking about running away like letting it all, like getting divorced, and it was going through my head, and then Rocky came on the TV show, and he's getting his butt kicked, and he keeps getting up, and that's where it just struck me. Dave, you've always been that guy. What has happened to you? You gotta find that guy that always got up. So I took out a pen, paper, started outlining, and I came up with four things that day. Gratitude, I'd lost my gratitude. I had no perspective of anything. I was a guy who wore the same pair of socks for three years, not only because I thought they were good luck, because I didn't think I needed another pair, right? I, I wore three shiny suits because they were hand-me-down suits, and I, I didn't need the money for me. I needed to buy my mom a house in a car. I was grateful for everything. Forgiving, I had to forgive myself. I couldn't, I was so not forgiving of everyone else, but I had to forgive myself first. Then came accountable, which was more new one because my mom preached accountability. She called it below the line. She would say to all my siblings and I, You're, don't you dare go below the line. Blame, shame, and justification is no way to live. You need to live free. You need to be accountable for everything that you have in your life. Ask yourself, what did I do to attract this to myself and what am I supposed to learn from it? Lessons are everything. Life's about lessons. The more lessons you learn, the better you'll be. All these things I'm like, I have not been accountable. I'm accountable for this mess, for my wife hating me. Because in my head, when she first said, I'm like, look around you, I have a Ferrari, a Porsche, motorhomes and wave runners and beach houses, 33 homes, a ski mountain. I couldn't understand how she could not be happy. That accountability and then the inspiration. I had to find, I wasn't inspired for anything. I wasn't in the pursuit of anything. So I outlined this. I ask for forgiveness from my wife. I forget, work on forgiving myself. And all of a sudden, things start changing. I run into the guy from the movie The Secret, Lee Brower, the attitude of gratitude. And they hire me as a consultant. And I meet all these transformational people, Bob Proctor and Jack Canfield. All these people who later on in my life 
are my friends who I sit with and write books with and speak with. But they all say, here's the interesting thing in my life. Two years after I went through my transformation and worked through that. And that takes a while, right? Because you, oh, can't, yeah. you can't wake up one morning and write a list. And I mean, it's still, it, do you have to take a while to get rid of some of those bad mindsets and uh, bad habits? Fire and, friends. And right. like, I didn't even know about meditation. You know, I, I learned to meditate because I was flying to India and the woman next to me literally said to me, are you okay? And in my still arrogant mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm CEO of Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment. Like, literally, that's what <laughs> that's I'm what, looking at. That's the, what you would tell your, yourself every day. So <laughs> I your did. identity was these things. Yeah. Oh yeah, and the money I had, I got yeah. golf course. She said, I said, why? She said, because you're so full of light, but you're blocking it. And I rolled my eyes going, oh God, this would be a long flight. I'm like, well, thank you. She said, do you meditate? I was like, no, and I went into this diatribe, I remember today, meditate, I have no time to meditate. I was born broke, I'm a multi-millionaire. Meditation is for people who are sick, broke, and lying on their mom's couch unemployed. There's I, no room for, you sound like my wife, I don't need to meditate. And she said, oh, that's too bad because I can teach you to vibrate faster. And it was weird to me, it wasn't what I was expecting this doctor Sangeeta Sahi to say, this medical doctor. I'm like, what does vibration have to do with meditation? She said, everything vibrates. And that I understood. She said, the earth, plants, animals, humans, sound, light, and then your thoughts. And then she changed my life because she said, do you know what vibrates the fastest? And I looked at her kind of with arrogance, like, no. She said, the truth. The truth vibrates the fastest. And I can teach you through meditation. You can only be aware of that which vibrates equal to or less than you. I can teach you to pursue the truth mentally, physically, and spiritually, through meditation. Would you like to join me in a workshop? I can teach you to do this. I can see you are and have this light. I'm telling you, I don't know why the hairs were standing up. I had called my wife and said, I'm gonna stay in India four extra days and, and go to this workshop. And when is this, what year, this roughly? Is, roughly, it would be 2009. Okay. All right, yeah, so this is pre-financial crisis and all that stuff. Yeah, it was okay. right, oh, no, sorry, this would be, two, you're right, it's right right before the before financial, that. so this is 2007 and a half, okay. yeah, all right. right there, 2007 and a half, so she says to me, um, you go, I call my wife, I'm like, I'm going to this workshop, my wife literally Googled the whole thing, she thought it was a scam. Right. Like, in her mind, she literally was gonna, once again, bring up when I got home, leaving me, if this was a lie. Oh, she thought you might be lying. Yeah, because okay, I right. said I'm going to a quantum healing theta meditation workshop. <laughs> Me, like you, like one of your Wall Street buddies, yeah, like Jordan Belfort. Too, like, yeah, like Jordan Belfort coming in. <laughs> yeah, right. And I went to this thing and I learned the power of meditation, but more importantly that I had, like my power of how connected I was to an unbelievable source of energy, light, and knowledge that I had been creating interference and corrosion to an extraordinary power that I've been blessed with to download information and like I could do body scans and back li past life regressions and all types of things that I made fun of my wife just for getting a reading once a year on her birthday, <laughs> right? Now how do you have that? Is that like something? Everyone has it. Okay. I, but every, everyone's connected. Everyone has it, but do you, do you have it more? Or you, can you channel less, it? Easy. Right, so there's interference and corrosion to that connection. Most people don't realize that we're always connected to an unbelievable source. Okay. Just naturally through 
evolution of quant this quantum memory, the DNA, this chromosome code that I have, I that's why I'm able to to attract things in man and you are too. We attract things really fastly, unconsciously when we were young. It's because we just have a clearer connection. Okay. But I was because of the clear connection, I think afraid, and then creating corrosion or, or interference to that connection with drugs. You'll see a lot of people higher on the spectrum, like Lee Steinberg was an alcoholic. And I used to tell people he drinks to lower his vibration so he can communicate. Mm -hmm. It's like someone with autism has a difficulty communicating to others. Mm -hmm. You know, Lee's a person who can read a book and remember every word in a book. That's not normal. That's a clearer connection to an unbelievable source of higher awareness or vibration. Okay. I learned all this. So now I come home spiritual and on a quest. And it kind of scares my wife. She definitely doesn't want to divorce me. She's on board with me. She likes your energy. Yeah. And I'm getting, she knows there's financial troubles, but we have a lot of money. Okay. But then things really start 2007 and 8 falling apart. There's a crisis. I'm not liquid enough. I learned a valuable lesson that, you know, just because you have equity and property doesn't mean the bank will let you borrow money. And I got my ego involved in lawsuits and went through my cash trying to prove it and then got into a malpractice lawsuit from a guy screwing up the case. It was the universe was coinciding to exactly what I wanted to manifest, which was a new start to prove that I could change my life. So the scariest time for my wife, I always say, is when we went bankrupt. And when was this? What year? 2008. And how did that happen? Explain that to someone, how you could be worth $100 million yeah. and then go bankrupt. I love that question. And I'm, I know I'm with a good interviewer, you know, a good broadcaster when they ask me that, because if you're not more interested than interesting, how can you let that slide? <laughs> right. Like, okay, idiot, how do you lose $100 million? Here's how it happened. I had a lot of cash, but I mostly had equity, real estate in, in stock. Well, in 2008, what happened was I was equating really quickly the equity I had, especially in the golf course, that I could go to my private bank if I needed cash. So I got my ego involved in this lawsuit and my wife was feeding into it too and I'm going through the transformation. I'm not too enlightenment yet and still not, but I was at the early stages. I was paying cash to beat the crap out of my neighbor who you know, fraudulently sold me a, a, a condo conversion. Okay. went through millions in cash. Millions of dollars fees. fighting that. And I was still living a crazy, three, 33 homes, ski mount. I, I had a big liquidity right. going. Well, all of a sudden, everything starts going down. I need a quick five million. I go into the private bank and said, hey, I need a five million on the line. They said, no. I said, well, I got 40 million in equity with your bank. Yeah, you do, but it doesn't mean we have to give you. Those properties are going down. We're not in a great secure position. Go get a loan somewhere else. All of a sudden you start shopping for loans. Things are going down faster. Nobody's giving you money. You start missing a payment. Now nobody will give you money. And very quickly, you're facing bankruptcy or a restructure. And I was ready for a clean start. The cool thing about my bankruptcy. Did it freak you out? did not freak me out. You say you're ready for a clean start when you lose all of your money, yeah. which was all of your identity up until relief. then. I almost felt If you relief. hadn't met the, the lady on the plane, would it have been a different situation? Panicked, panicked. I, I would have been panicked. I would have screwed everything up. I, that two years of transformation was preparing me to handle this. It scared my wife how calm I was. Hmm. I was. But here's where the truth came, is that by the time I lost everything, one, I needed separation from the past. A lot of, I couldn't do it without cleaning it all out. The cool thing was because I had equity, because 
of where I was at and how I did it, I didn't really owe anybody any, like the settlement was different than most bankruptcies. It settled me down to almost zero, which allowed me to build credit after the bankruptcy quicker than most because my relationships were whole. Okay. You, right. you see the yeah. difference? So you lost, but you lost all your properties. Oh, and I lost everything. Wow. We moved out of my house. We were living, uh, give you an idea, my wife was panicked because she couldn't understand why I was so calm. We, she's pregnant with my baby oops. I, I, this is public now, so my son's gonna have issues, but he's nine. Right. Baby oops was a boy, three daughters, okay. under 10, and a baby boy coming, rented house, rented furniture, working for Lee Steinberg, making good money, not great, good money, uh, didn't own a thing, and I get my paycheck from Lee, and my wife says to me, I said to my wife, hey, I'm gonna give this much money to Warren Moon, who's a partner at Lee Steinberg, Hall of Fame quarterback, his charity for kids to go to college, because without people like me, I never would have been able to go to college. Is that okay? And my wife, without blinking, she's like, yeah. She goes, I can't believe that. I'm like, what? She goes, you finally get it. Because like, my whole life, my mom and my wife, even though they were good at receiving what I was giving, would tell me that I was lost. They were worried about me. Always, I was lost, I was lost. Dave, you don't have to do these things, you're, you're lost. She finally said, you get it. I, I said, yeah, I go, I trust the universe. I'm born with a conscious competency. I've done people right. I have more situational knowledge. I know like all the things I didn't have coming out of law school, it only took me nine months to be a millionaire. It's gonna take me weeks. I know exactly how to make money. And she goes, no, you get it. I go, yeah, I trust the universe. She goes, then double it. Double the donation. I looked at her, I go, I don't trust the universe that you much. You don't have any money. I know. And this is your only source of income, and yeah. this is your paycheck, and you're giving and I'm going to rent everything. And you're giving a chunk of it to the charity, and she says, she says double it. Yeah. Okay. That's the wife I have. <laughs> she should be in the chair. Ye oh, trust me. That's a, that's a strong woman to say that. To stick with me. Stick with you, A, and then to be even to find that acceptable to donate While a chunk While she's of your pregnant cash. with right. our fourth child, who everyone's okay. like, literally, some people were, were like, you, you shouldn't have this child. Which is never in my head, right? Like, there's, okay. are you kidding me? Anyway, it took me two weeks to make my first million back. Two weeks? Two weeks from that day that I gave that money. And I, I have given tiding. I believe and shifted my paradigm and said, if I create a void, I know how to attract what I want. The bigger the void I can create in my life, meaning the more I can give a value and a service to people, the more I can ask for. As long as it keeps going through for other people. I have nothing. Everything, it's a downstream for me. Everything comes through me for others.